Hey everyone, welcome to Brown Breakdown. I'm your host, Apoorva Gandetti. Every episode, I get to sit down with South Asian artists of all types at all different levels of their careers to understand the tools necessary to build a life as an artist. We'll be talking about everything from turning a hobby into a career, obstacles along the way, breaking tired stereotypes, and changing the media landscape to be more inclusive. My guest today is composer and fashion designer Surya Giri. After learning to play the piano at just three years old, Surya's love for music, composition, and especially string instruments continued to grow as he moved around the globe with his family. While later studying at the University of Chicago, Surya was able to work with notable composers and eventually break out on his own. Surya has composed scores for projects with the BBC, Al Jazeera, and independent short films. His most recent project, Alpha Mare, was selected as Vimeo's 2021 short film staff pick. If composing wasn't enough, Surya is also the co-founder of SGBG Atelier, an Indian-based fashion brand that celebrates the long history and craft of handloom weaving and seeks to change how fashion cycles dictate labor. SGBG's pieces have been featured in Vogue and GQ and even won Surya the Times Business Award for Young Entrepreneur and Next Generation Icon in Fashion Design. And it doesn't stop there. Surya also released his first single, You're Not Alone, featuring Sid Sriram and Shilpa Rao under the ages of Suri. While these endeavors may seem disparate at first, for Surya, they're much more connected than they seem because they're all connected by string. Hey, Surya, welcome to Brown Breakdown. Hi, Puva. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. I'm so excited to talk to you because... I think you're the first person who I'm just like so amazed by your artistic and professional range. And I just want to understand how it all comes together and like even how you just make time for it. So <laughs> you are, you're, you're a composer, you're a fashion designer, and you're also a tech consultant. True, true. All three, you know, sometimes some more than the others, but yes. So you're in Chennai right now. Were mm-hmm. you, did you grow up in Chennai or did you just come back after college? Million dollar question, I think. Uh, so I was actually, I was born in Bangalore and then uh, almost immediately was shipped off to the States for about seven years. So we lived in the Midwest and then we were in California, just following my my parents around. And then we were in Singapore for about 10 years. And finally, I mean, we traipsed around the world a little bit for a few, two years in between and then finally ended up back in India. So Chennai has been uh, home for, the, for a good while now, of which a few of those years were in Chicago for school and then back here. See, I always thought my family moved around a lot, but that's like <laughs> crazy because <laughs> we, we went from India to the UK to the US. But yeah, that's a crazy global trip there. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. You know, you get to meet a lot of different folks. You you, you start absorbing yeah. cultures. You're taught the importance of culture very early on as a kid. And that, you know, that respect for that, I think hopefully never leaves. And I also feel like for me, I don't know if this is true for you too, there's always that feeling of like trying to find ways to hang on to the culture mm. because mm. it's like the one thing that you want to keep carrying around. And, you know, as my family geographically and chronologically moved further and further away from India, I kept looking for things to like pull me back. Mm. That's beautifully put. Like what? Oh, thank you. I think in college, especially, you know, dance was a big thing for me and finding that made me feel very connected to India and Odyssey, Kuchipudi, Bhangra. Oh, word. Okay, very cool. So that was a big one. And even think and then like I my family speaks Telugu, but then I realized I wanted to learn Hindi. So things like that, that as I got older, I felt more like I wanted to do. Did you study uh, Hindi in in college? Yeah. Ah, Okay. What did your parents think of that? (laughs) They were so happy. (laughs) Really? They were so happy. Yeah, because (laughs) I had taken French all through Mm -hmm. like middle school and high school. Mm -hmm. And then I 
I placed into French, like some level of French at U Chicago. And then I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to start at Hindi 101 because I don't know how to read Hindi. I'm just going to do it. And they literally made us learn the Hindi script within the first two weeks. After two weeks, they were like, okay, you know how to read Hindi now. Let's learn the language. <laughs> uh, Jason Grunebaum? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. I took one class of his and I dropped out because I was like, wow, the pace is too fast. I cannot cope. It's tough. It's tough. Yeah, we had a lot of... I'm guess I'm not really a native Hindi speaker, but we had a lot of native Hindi speakers that who had spoken Hindi at home, but like didn't know it formally. And they came into the class thinking it was going to be such a breeze. And they were like, oh, you mean I can't use a single English word? Never mind. <laughs> That's and he's a great teacher. I'm really curious just to learn about the beginnings of you know, all of your different interests. So where did the where did the love for music start from? When did you first pick up an instrument? Many moons ago. I owe it all to my dad, honestly. Uh, music entirely entirely comes from my dad. I think if he if he didn't do what he's doing today, he would have definitely been a musician. And I think a, a damn good one at that. He was always, always, always pay, playing music in any juncture. A lot of our communication re revolved around music, uh, old Tamil Hindi, Telugu film songs. And I think some of that just absorbed naturally, you know, some sort of osmosis and carried that with me and that sort of reverence for music over the years. Definitely. I mean, like everything from the old cassettes, I, I still have a whole, his whole collection just lying around here. So absolutely all my dad. And so for your dad, it was always a hobby. Just as a passion. Yeah. Yeah. Always a an avid listener. Was he excited that you wanted to pursue it further than a hobby? No, it's a good question. So absolutely. I, you know, I was, there, there was a point, I think, in school, he'd always encourage being creative, you know, going beyond just the, the sort of day-to-day -day quotidian asks of school. Hey, be good at math. Hey, be good at this. Be good at, you know, make sure you do well in these, you know, subjects. But he would always, as soon as I'd come home, he'd say, please play, pick up the violin, play. So I started playing piano when I was at the age of three. So wow. <laughs> they used to, pro uh, this is in St. Louis, Missouri. I, I used to be propped up on like three or four pillows just to reach <laughs> the piano. Your fingers would have been so small. I don't know. <laughs> One key at a time. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, started playing piano at three and then picked up the violin at around age nine, ten-ish. Western classical, then later Carnatic classical. And then I think things just, you know, spiraled out of control from there. I started, you know, getting really excited about the possibilities of creation of music and understanding how does this work? I, I, you know, as a player, as someone who is, you're simply translating what is on a page or what is, you know, what is already pre you know, transcribed on a piece of music. What really, really, really inspired me and provoked me to get into composition was how are people psychologically tapping these nerves at these specific points of time? And you start to really appreciate as you get a little bit deeper and you really start to listen. How can a composer really be able to reach into a listener's psyche and pick out a very specific instrument at this timbre, at this you know, at this particular frequency range, you know, to stimulate a certain response, elicit a certain response, right? You start to realize that the degree of precision in some of the greatest composers is mathematical. It, it's math, like the, the amount of precision that they are able to imbue within, you know, a lot of their scores. They're thinking about at any given point of time, okay, and, you know, bar 66, this measure, I've done this before, how do I pull that back in? How do I evoke the same or a different, more nuanced emotion through, you know, violin two in like row three of the orchestra, right? And how do I like use a glissando to make that more evocative, right? And that really starts to get your gears whirring. So, you know, went down that rabbit hole of trying to understand composition, studied that across Western and Carnatic uh, classical, then uh, a bit more formally as well through the years. And that's kind of what led me to 
picking up all kinds of instruments, you know, the drums, the guitar, bass, blah, 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 just to be able to be conversant, at least. When you're in yeah. a room with other musicians, you need to understand, you know, and, and then taking that theory and actually being able to translate it to, you know, your fellow musicians is so, it's so liberating. It is so liberating when you go from understanding this very arcane, like, okay, cool. Yeah. Okay. This guy used a glissando and like, you know, whatever. <laughs> and then, you know, to be able to say, okay, this is, you know, muscle memory at that point. That's a dream, right? You know, to be able to be so fluid and so, so conversant to use the word again in, right. in the craft that you can just pull it out at any given point of time. What always blows my mind is just, I don't even understand how you learn to compose because I feel like with an instrument, you can see the steps very clearly. Like you learn how to read the notes, you learn how to like, you know, where they are on the instrument. From my from my two years of playing the clarinet, this is how much I know. <laughs> but to actually go from that to like, I feel like tapping into this part of your brain that I just don't even understand that produces this music. And I've never thought of it, like you said, that it's mathematical and thinking about how can I evoke these different emotions. But yeah, what did that, when you first decided, oh, I really want to get more into this, technically, how did you find your way in? I just did it really badly for some time. <laughs> <laughs> no, and that's then hopefully, amazing. <laughs> hopefully I got better at it. it truly, I think it, it's just about trying to understand where certain things lead you. And your instincts will start to guide you at first. And you'll be very pre precociously excited about certain things. You'll be like, oh, I'll like chase this down a trail. And then you'll see where it ends. Sometimes it's a dead end. Sometimes it actually leads you to something else. Whenever whenever you feel bummed about like, you know, uh, a composition, I, I have this particularly favorite Nigel Godrich quote. He's the producer for Radiohead, a long-term collaborator with them over the last 20 odd years. And he says, I would, <laughs> I would get these project files, these sessions of music from the band, mainly from Tom, Tom York. And what he would do is he would say, yeah, okay, this minute here out of this like nine, you know, nine minutes of stuff, this is an idea. This can be something, you know, so even the pros, you know, we can take heart. <laughs> it's a process. Yeah. You just have to move. You just have to do it. You have to go through it. That's so interesting. I feel like music is the one thing that I'm so curious about because I have never had any musical talent. <laughs> and so it just is, it really amazes me when someone is able to produce that and how important do you would you say like understanding what your personal taste is when it comes to composing? I think it becomes very easy to lay down sort of superficial boundaries. Sometimes it's helpful, right, to say that I am a rock musician. I will do rock. Yeah, and and sometimes it's very helpful to lay down these sort of criteria and say, okay, I'm going to strict stick to the conventions of this sound. I will use a guitar, a drum, you, you know, I will orchestrate it this way. I'll arrange it. I'll voice the chords in a certain way. And, and, you know, you'll follow some sort of template. But I think inevitably, inevitably, for someone who is truly passionate about anything, no matter how much you try to follow any convention, you will immediately inject yourself into it. I think it's impossible not to. And I think the stronger and the more fluent you are with that, the medium, the easier it comes out. Not easier. I think you struggle equally, but I think you can move faster. And do you feel like personally for you that you stay within one type of genre or that you always gravitate to certain instruments? Or do you just let each project that comes your way guide, you know, what instrument I get, am I going to pick? What genre am I going to go to? So uh, I think, you know, my <laughs> my label would give you a gold star right now. Be like, yo, man, please get this guy to stick to one genre. <laughs> Gold star. I talked to them before and they were like, hey, please ask him this question. Knew it. But yeah, you know, for film, it's film is very, very exciting in that way, in that you can automatically explore a lot. You can use very unconventional instrumentation sounds. You can really warp things, right? 
whether subtly or not, or whether it's absolutely glaringly in you know your audience's faces, and and you can get away with it because it's in service of something greater. I, I think when it comes to building your own sound, if you are producing for an artist, it becomes difficult because you already come into the studio knowing that okay, all right, I have to produce you know so and so artist sound. I have an idea what they stand for. They mean this to their audience, so people have this set of symbols that they associate with this artist. But when you're doing it for yourself, I'm I struggle actually to put that architecture together. So I've I've I put in a new rule. As of uh, 2021, one of my New Year's resolutions is pop architecture only. And I just, I really love pop music. I love it so much because... Me too. Yeah, because like it's it's so, it's brilliant and it's so hard. It is so difficult. When you have a set of rules that are, you have a verse, you have a pre-chorus, you have a chorus, you need to repeat that, you need a bridge, you need then a breakdown, outro. You need to be able to do it in such a way that there is a familiarity to it immediately. It can't be so out of the box that people are like, okay, what, what is this? Like, where where am I going? Am I here? Where, where did I go? You have to understand what, where your audience is expecting and then nudge them slightly off track, you know, every time. You can't just like completely divert the train on <laughs> to a completely different direction most of the time, right, in pop music. And I, I really, you know, I'm very excited by a lot of producers who, who are able to do this and subvert pop music architecture in such amazing, subtle ways. I'm thinking of like Ariel Rexshade, Rostam, a couple other folks. But yeah, I think it's it's just, it's always fun to put constraints on yourself. Just out of curiosity, who are some of your favorite pop artists right now? And who are their, who are their producers that you look up to? Ooh, ooh, ooh. Let me get back to you. I'll think on that. We can, we can do that one. Okay. Again. Yeah, I have to think about that. Okay, if it yeah. comes to you, let yeah. me know. Who do you vibe with? Me? Okay, my two favorite artists right now are Dua Lipa and Billie Eilish. And I know Brilliant. they're obviously like Brilliant. two of the biggest artists right now. So it feels like oh, of course, like they're just really big right now. But I genuinely, yeah, they're amazing. And I genuinely like in the past five, six, seven years, there hasn't been a single artist that I've really gravitated towards that have been like, oh my mm. God, I would pay $500 to see their concert right now. Mm -hmm. And that's amazing. 500 bucks. That's, yeah. that's, that's brilliant. <laughs> okay, maybe not, not even including popcorn, the merch. This is just a ticket. It's great. Okay. Okay. 250 <laughs> for the ticket. 250 for everything. <laughs> Why do you think that is? Because I'm assuming you'd be fairly plugged into what's happening in the music. It's just, you know, music is something that permeates our culture so effortlessly, right? You hear it everywhere. People are talking about it everywhere. Yeah. It's a very easy commodity culturally to access. I'm curious, like, what you know? How is it that these two artists have just like really? Yeah, I think for me, I, I've always, I think I gravitate towards pop music, like I've said, and like top forty. I'm always like, you know what? I'm okay with the fact that I like top forty music because there's a reason it's top forty, mm. and it's because a lot of people like it, and that's fine. I was just listening to music, and I felt like I felt other people liked it, and so I should like it. And I did like it, but I didn't know why. I also care about who the artist is themselves. I, I can like some of Taylor Swift's songs. I don't really like her as a person. And I felt that way about a lot of artists. And with Dua Lipa and Billie Eilish, I really like them as people. From what I know, you know, I obviously don't know them personally, but I feel like I know them personally. And that is exciting mm -hmm. to me. That's interesting, right? You know, like that sense of like, hey, I, I could live next to this, but, or I don't know, you know, the sense of familiarity. I think, I guess maybe that comes out of the music, that sense of intimacy or vulnerability. I'm not sure. I think so. I think at least with Billie Eilish, for sure, because, yeah. you know, she writes everything herself and it comes from, I, re I recently watched her documentary and like a lot of her music comes from her journals that she's been mm. keeping for years. And I really appreciate that because it's hard. It's really hard to be vulnerable. So it's so true. I think especially now, you know, where it's this age of, I think, well, I don't know. I think it's easy to be vulnerable, but 
I don't know if that's it's easy to to do that for a long time, right? Because mm. uh, I mean, today I can just you know I can go to Instagram within five minutes. I can post this really heartfelt thing, right? But do you have the emotional energy to sustain that over time? I don't know. It, I feel like that's hard. That's really hard. And someone like like a Billie Eilish, who's or like a Phoebe Bridgers, or kind of writing very deeply cutting personal stuff in there. I think vulnerability is definitely something we should expect. Sure. But I don't know, I, I'm much more interested in the fantasy. I think you look at someone like Frank Ocean, right? And you think about, okay, yes, oh, Frank Ocean, so vulnerable, so like poignant, he's bringing up so much of his past. But I don't know, you know, like, do, you, do is that really his past? Is he constructing something? What is the world he's building? Is that really him? Is that some version of him? Is any of him in there? I don't know, you know, like songwriters as this world building, right? You look at yeah great fantasies. And I think, you know, some artists like that, like a Frank Ocean, able to disguise vulnerability, I think, in, in several ways. Yeah, I had never thought of it about that way. Because when I think of screenwriters, that's, I, I immediately think they're bringing themselves to it, but it is world building. And I hadn't thought about it that way with music. Hmm, let me go listen to some Frank Ocean. <laughs> Frank, Frank is definitely up there in the in the top. I'm curious to know more about like your path to being able to work professionally as a composer. What was that like to build that path? Because you went to Chicago. Did you ever consider going to school for music specifically? Every day I was at Chicago. yes. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Why am I here? Why am I doing the core? I came here. It would be fun, they said. Yeah, I mean... You know, I, I like every good young young lad. I, uh, I studied uh, economics, went to U Chicago. You know, my parents told me it'd be good for me, so I listened to them. And <laughs> but uh, yeah, honestly speaking, it I knew for myself that I wanted to create music, but I I didn't want to be constrained by sort of academic notions of it. I I, I studied yeah. you know, music for two years at U Chicago, and it was very rigorous. It was more math than you know performance. And I felt that was healthy, you know, to some degree. And then after a point, it's like, okay, I have the rigor, I have the discipline. And, uh, you know, taking that and running with that in the world, I think just seemed much more exciting to me. Uh, I really just wanted to get out there and do things. Long story short, I took some internships with some folks and began working for a few composers on some advertisements some films, both in LA and then uh, back in India and Chennai. And long story short, that led to a couple other opportunities. And then after that, I was able to actually uh, venture out on my own with, you know, some of the folks and the network I'd built. And uh, very fortunate to be pulled on by the BBC, Al Jazeera, some other independent production teams as well to score for them. And it, it, it's just been such a wonderful journey. And I think it's very, you're just, just very lucky. I'm very grateful for that. And were you doing those internships while you were still in school? Or was that all after you graduated that you were like, okay, now let me go look for some internships and get my foot in the door here? Yeah, so I was, <laughs> I was very annoying in school. So <laughs> I, I had, a, you know, I would send these orchestral mocks, and I didn't know what I was doing. Like, it was so naive. I, I don't think I've seen those sessions or, or opened those, uh, you know, the scores since. But what I would do is I would furiously write out a score, be struck by inspiration in the middle of the night in the library quickly go into like you know one corner of the library the reg right and <laughs> yeah yeah my the fourth floor stacks like somewhere in the corner that was my spot yes <laughs> and just until like the wee hours of the morn just be writing some stuff and i would uh, put the score together put a midi mock-up which it just like this really dinky sounding computerized like terrible version of, of strings right i fell in love with string orchestras having played in, in them as a kid you know had the opportunity when i was in singapore to go and like tour belgium a little bit with a small orchestra a bunch of kids and I've just always been in love with strings I think they just add so much to anything you can put strings in anything and just boom better it's like I don't know what the ingredient is 
masala. I don't know what, like <laughs> tamarind. That's secret sauce. <laughs> the secret sauce. And so I would send, horrendously annoying, I would send out these things to everyone I knew in the music industry. And at that point, there was nobody. So I would spam basically three people. And eventually, you know, I think some perseverance paid off and some folks heard it. Uh, brought me on board. And so I was scoring a lot while I was in uh, school. So I would, you know, finish my stats class, get terrible grades in stat, then come home, <laughs> uh, come back home, go to the reg, just score, 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 and just do my best to get better. And uh, I think one thing led to another. That's amazing. I, I'm starting to notice a lot of similarities with this, like, I didn't know what I was doing. So I just tried it and sent my stuff yep. out to see what happens because <laughs> yeah. I didn't have anything to lose anyway. And sometimes I do feel like that little bit of naiveness is so important because Absolutely. in order to get, if you think about how hard it is to get into something, you're never going to do it. Agreed. So you just have Absolutely. to have this like blind faith. Absolutely agreed. I think, you know, something my dad always says to me is like, look, at any given point of time for any idea in the world, be it a startup, be it a piece of music, be it, you know, a podcast, whatever it is, right? There will be a thousand people out there with a similar idea working harder than you. They'll be much more talented. They will be much more capable. They will be much more connected. The only thing you can do, you cannot control any of that, right? The only thing you can do is just do it. Just work. You, you have to take an MVP approach to life. Build something, ship it, see what happens. I don't think you can be too precious with things. MVP approach to life. I like that. <laughs> mm. uh, Putting that on a shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Done. No, I think I, I, I think that's so important and it's so true. Like there's always going to be someone else who's like more connected or has more luck or something, yeah. but you have to try. You what is it? You miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. <laughs> Wayne Gretzky, Michael Scott. Yeah. So I'm really curious to learn about the projects that you did with BBC and Al Jazeera. So you composed for a series called Fork the System. Yes. Love the name. <laughs> Why did they bring you on to that project specifically? And where were you in your your composition journey? And what were you fairly new at that point, or was it also a learning experience while you were working on that project? No, absolutely. I think uh, first and foremost. I think every project is a completely new experience. Uh, even while I was working for some, as an orchestrator, as a composer, uh, assistant composer to some prominent composers in that process, I learned that I had this notion in my head that, okay, these guys, they've been around for decades. They know what they're doing. They are the old horses on the race, you know, on the racetrack. They know all the tricks, right? And you realize the moment you walk into the room with the director or for whatever project it is, they are flexible. They are water. You know, they're just flowing. They're just understanding how do I think about this? You know, there's no like, cool, I have a template. I hope your your film fits into my a template. I don't think that concept of scoring exists anymore. And I think I was brought on because the project was absolutely beautiful. It, it's a, Fork the System is essentially a story about food traversing cultures, how it bridges gaps in cultures, you know, in some very extreme situations. Uh, in the very first episode, and I'm, I'm really thrilled at the reception it got as well, was North Korean defectors to South Korea and how they were using North Korea as this tool of memory, right? Of remembering this sort of past that connected them to folks that, you know, may not be alive anymore. There's a story, for example, of a young girl who's left Korea, uh, North Korea. She's in South Korea. She runs a small uh, restaurant and uh, she cooks at home as well. And she's cooking North Korean dishes. And these remind her of folks that she had to leave behind in North Korea. And uh, it, it was just a story about memory. It's a story about history. It was a story about trying to think about what bridges cultures universally. 
And so music and food were really, you know, the two things. So they reached out and got on board and the directors, brilliant team, Hyojin and, and, and Joy, they not only directed, they produced, they very scrappily pulled together this whole series amazingly. And it was just such a wonderful process. We were trying things out. We were running, just seeing what stuck. It was very strange, right? Because for me, it was the first time of like, okay, what does this food sound like? Like I was looking at a noodle, right? And I was like, oh, what does this noodle sound like? Like, how do I score this noodle? <laughs> right? Yeah. You're like, okay, you know, you're looking at, there's some in film, it's called spotting when you're looking at the mm. either the roughs or the dailies or if it's further down in the timeline of the film production, you're looking at a first cut. So before we even hit picture lock, we were looking at a bunch of rough cuts of like serving up uh, these noodles. And I was like, I don't know what to do here because I'm used to like reacting off characters, emotions, and, you know, mm. the lighting, the cinematography, the director's notes, how they're ex- expressing what this music needs to look like. And they pretty much gave me carte blanche to say like, hey, God bless. <laughs> and so I was looking at this footage. I was like, okay, uh, this noodle sounds like this instrument. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, it was just an expo- a process of exploration where you just tried things and just felt it out. Because, you know, I did not know that, okay, actually this noodle is this this particular sort of uh, string with a, a sort of mute put on it, consordino, and like played this way, but with like a particular beat under it, right? This kind of kick drum, I'm going to cut off these frequencies to make it a little, to glue a little better just discovery. Yeah. Wow. What does this noodle sound like? That's so interesting, <laughs> right? Because we have such a acute understanding of what someone's expression is, what emotion they're conveying, but you almost have to like discern what the emotion is in that moment. Yeah, yeah absolutely. When you were composing for this kind of project, did you ever feel like you as a person who was composing the music were dictating the emotion of the scene or did you feel like that it was a collaboration between like what was on what was in the picture and what you were writing? Yeah, no, it's very it's a very fine balance. And sometimes you need to uh, it's very difficult to know when you've crossed the line. Right. And you have to just really feel that out in terms of, OK, is the music scoring? Is it underscoring? Is it completely blowing this out of proportion? Right. You need to understand the emotion and the tension against what the visuals are, right? Because the visuals could be saying something. There's a subtext behind that visual, right? There are several layers in terms of time. What has the film conveyed already? What should I know? What should I not? And how you're always playing between a lot of these sort of floating invisible parameters that you need to kind of balance. So I I always tend to err on the side of just taking a step back and letting things be a, a bit more subtle than necessary. But sometimes you just have to you have to drive certain scenes. You just work with the director and and it will find its way. And technically, when you're going to record the music, do you do you watch back the the picture in front of you and play along with it? Or how does that work? Yeah, so I mean, uh, it depends if you're if using sort of virtual instruments, a lot of digital instruments can I can put it in through you know a computer and you're good to go because you'll have the picture you'll have the reel each reel playing right on your uh, on your system when you're recording any live instruments what you tend to do is you'll have a full screen you'll have you know the musicians in the same room if it's an orchestra you know whether you know 30 or 30 plus size it's down to the millisecond you have to really 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 time your score you spend weeks going through overthinking every second every measure of score being like, oh, okay, uh, it's just off a little bit. I need to like, you know, change the tempo slightly here. I need to add a bar of like a slightly irregular meter. Sometimes I need to change the rhythm of the scene. It's 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 a fun process. 
And it's always so fluid. It's always so dynamic. How have you been able to make that work with COVID and everyone working in isolation? Billion dollar question. It's uh, it's been tough. <laughs> it's been tough. I think folks are dealing with absolutely un- you know unprecedented situation for our times, and I think it's it's an absolutely universal struggle at this point. Folks, thanks to technology, have found ways to to bypass being in the same room. You know, there is a magic when you know you have. 30 session session musicians, you have some phenomenal players in the same room, and you can really assess and and really feel the pulse of the room, the energy at any given point of time. It's a little hard to to coordinate when you have one-on-one sessions with musicians and, you know, recording over Zoom, you have to (laughs) play it back every time. But I think people are really adapting to the situation. And I think, you know, knock on wood, hopefully the the issue subsides over time and and we're able to get back into rooms together. Oh, I hope so. So, the short you're working on right now, Alpha Mare. It's out. Yeah, yeah, it's out. Did you have to do all of that remotely, the composition for that? No. So actually, that was uh, that was put together about in 2019, if I'm not mistaken. Pre-pandemic, we had the luxury of getting together. The, the interesting part, though, is actually it was entirely virtual in terms of the collaboration. So Mimi Wilcox and Victor Suarez, both phenomenal filmmakers. Uh, so they reached out and we were able to you know, they were in different parts of the world. We actually met up in Japan, just completely, completely by chance. Uh, I was there for some work. They were also there for, uh, I believe, some work. And then in LA, again, a year later, <laughs> completely, completely randomly. But through the process, we had collaborated remotely on the script. You know, Mimi called me and, and, and walked me through their idea. And it's just, it was just such a beautiful film. And I remember seeing seeing their first cut. It was, it was still really raw, but it, it was absolutely beautiful it was so poignant and it was this phenomenal story of this woman you know who's healing herself in companionship with these animals and she's finding finding a way to reckon with this very traumatic past through completely changing her identity and it was it was really touching and i mean for me i'm not sure i can't speak for mimi or victor but for me at that time i was definitely going through this sort of like quarter life crisis of like oh man like you know what am i supposed to do with my life like you know i've just graduated from school you know, is this really what I want to do? Should I be doing something else? And it was just a great moment to, when I was scoring it, I felt, okay, you know what? Like, this is, this is me. I, I feel this. That's amazing. And you said that you had met them, you know, at different points when you were all working on different projects. Is that how you would say most of your work comes in is you meet people and then they're working on something and they're like, hey, you're a composer, want to come on? Or do you have to pitch yourself as well for projects? Absolutely. So I think pitching is a pretty standard rite of passage, I think, for just about everyone. It's always a really good challenge. It always really, really pushes yourself to say, okay, I have seen one fragment, one hundredth of what this this film could potentially be. I have no idea what this is actually going to be. You have, you know, a few lines, you have a small brief, you have some, you know, scene descriptions to go off of. And you have to somehow... Think about how am I getting in these characters' minds? How am I setting the scene? How am I putting myself in the place of a storyteller, right? And how am I telling that story through these, whether it's a minute, whether it's a five-minute pitch, et cetera. And it's a good challenge. It's always a sort of race against the clock as well. So you're like, oh, man, pitch comes in. You're like, hey, man, you have like three days. Please finish the brief. You're like, oh, okay. (laughs) So it's always good fun. How much, what percentage would you say is that you have to pitch yourself? And what percentage is someone being like, hey, I know I want you to do it. Can you be the composer? It's about, I would say, 50-50 at this point, more or less. 50-50 is great. Okay, so we've talked a lot about your composition experience, your music experience, but you also have this fashion label, SGBG. So you founded the label in 2017. And 
it seems like you've taken off with this label so quickly. You've already been featured in Vogue and GQ. I saw that you mentioned that you also went to Paris Fashion Week. Uh, taking a couple steps back, when did you realize that you were interested in fashion and how did you go about getting this label off the ground so quickly? SGBG has been an absolutely roller coaster journey. Just really grateful, really fortunate to see the industry's response and just people's response to it. It came about, you know, my mom used to take me, she's part of a family that preserved a lot of these textile traditions. Okay. Uh, in Kerala specifically. You know, I, <laughs> I never paid it any mind. I would always like follow her on these trips to clusters where weaving would happen and observe it. I was always fascinated by the machines and oh, wow, this is a very cool setup, et cetera. And, but I, I, I never had any inclination towards clothes or anything, at least not visibly. I started to realize in myself that I found myself gravitating to textiles as a medium of communication. And I don't think it's any different from music. You have in textile a really powerful form to very tangibly lock in a lot of emotion, a lot of history right there, very, very tangibly. This is something that you can touch and feel, right? And you're actually draping on yourself. There came a point where I was in school, I think it was like 20, 2015-ish. I had come back for a few weeks at home and uh, I had visited a loom with my mother. When I was w visiting this loom, I, it just really struck me. You know, I am so close to this and I don't appreciate it at all. How do I take this incredibly rich form of storytelling and at, at least showcase it in some, some shape or form to the world. It's so powerful and I think it carries not only a cultural message, but it's also about preservation. If you look at a good percentage of India's handloom industry is under threat. If you look at machine looms, the invasion of fast fashion into you know, consumer cycles, it's very difficult. If you think about you know, something that takes maybe weeks and sometimes even up to like eight months, for example, to produce, a nine yard piece of fabric, right? That sounds ridiculous. <laughs> it takes me eight months to produce a piece of fabric, but the amount of knowledge, history, cultural memory that is locked within that fabric is immense. And it's it really just hit me in the gut. It was this light bulb moment back in 2015. And I said, you know what? I have to do something. Yeah. Again, maybe it was super naive, but hey. <laughs> You're like hitting me in the gut too, because my family actually comes from a really similar background. Brilliant, yeah. Yeah, my grandfather, on my mom's side, he ran a sari business and like their house Amazing. was at the front and in the back room was where all of the looms were. Oh, brilliant. And Solapur, where my grandparents are from, is like a huge textile town and they, yeah. they make like a very specific type of rug. Yeah. And so it's all machine looms. So as you were talking, I could like hear the machine loom sound in the back of my head. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> we live next to one and on Wednesdays, the power goes out. So it's absolutely quiet and it's so amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of, uh, you know, Salapur was this big textile town and it's just, you know, every year we go back another, but just everywhere these they're closing. So yeah, you, I, I know exactly what you mean. Oh, it's amazing. And then, I mean, you know, like it's, it's incredible how much sort of, it just really frustrated me at that point. You know, I, I saw everyone from youth culture to all the way to the big stages in Paris, Tokyo, New York, Melbourne Fashion Week, right? All obsessed with Western design. If you think about any mm -hmm. of the, the very few designers who don't come from the Western canon, you know, so to speak, it's just so few and far between. And what frustrated me is that 
there was this one trade show I went to, in, I think it was like two months into building this business. And I, you know, very green, had gone in and, you know, had shown a particular buyer, I won't really name names, but that buyer came up, came up to us and said, wow, this is really amazing stuff. Where is it from? And, they, and you know, uh, I was like, yeah, this is actually woven in India. This is entirely handloom woven. It's an incredible labor of love and discussed a bit about the fabric. And they wrote it off saying, look, no, sorry, I only buy, you know, fabrics from Europe or so-and-so. And what surprised me is that the truth of it is that Dior, all of the major couture houses, they all source and actually do all of the, everything from the fabrication to the embroidery to a good deal of finishing happens in the so-called third world countries. You know, it was like, yo. <laughs> that's uh, exactly what I was about to say. I feel like every piece of clothing in my closet that's from some store in the U.S. says made in India, made correct. in Cambodia or something correct. like that. Yeah. And I think, you know, what really frustrated me is this sort of BPO attitude. What I does think. It, wait, what does BPO stand for? Uh, business process outsourcing. Okay. India has become, in some senses, and I, I'm just speaking about the textile industry, feel free to extrapolate. But <laughs> I think it's so easy to just deem India as this body shopping, you know, just BPO, hey, do all the, you know, push your outsourcing uh, into this uh, country. But, but, you know, like you think about the number of companies that take over anything that needs to be offshore, right? Everything from sort of process automation to any sort of operating function right. Right, in, a, in, in a firm. And all the thinking happens elsewhere. And that just really frustrated me because India is a con country, it's a culture of such an incredible shared imagined history. You think about everything that these cultures have to offer. And it is so absolutely unfathomable. You will never reach the bottom. You can literally not fathom the bottom, <laughs> you know, of that mm -hmm. to, to explore. I, I just had to do something about it. I mean, you know, in whatever little tiny way, what I wanted to do is two things. I wanted to really help the weavers that my mother had supported uh, over the years and really expand that, scale that out. So we were able to actually, at one point, just before COVID, we were able to support about 400, 415, I believe, weavers across uh, clusters across India. Wow. Mostly in South India, a few in North India, some in Varanasi, Andhra as well. And uh, I wanted to create a system that was able to allow them to weave from the comfort of their own homes, allow them to earn a sustainable income that was not dictated by cycles which is something that is so frustrating in the fashion industry where you have, for example, most designers will source a fabric from a cluster and then say, yeah, thanks, peace. I'll see you like next year. So to create continuous gainful employment for a cluster was one of our uh, main goals. So creating the supply for that, right? Uh, sorry, creating the demand to feed that supply for that quantity of, of that volume of work and then simultaneously be able to take something, at least if not of South India and, and some of North India, but also of myself into the fashion world. And it was really, really heartening to see some of the response. Yes, you know, it's always it's always an uphill journey, but it's been really, really beautiful to see, you know, the features and, and the response. We won a couple lovely, lovely accolades along the way, and I'm just grateful to folks. That's amazing. And I'm so excited to hear that you're doing that. So when you... When you're going about making a new piece or a new line, what does that process look like from start to finish? And how involved are you personally in designing or do you have designers that you employ as well? Absolutely. We're a small, scrappy team. So it typically starts from, it'll start from the textile and we'll think about where we need to go. It'll start from, a usually starts from music. So I work in a program called Max and it allows me to program a couple parameters. You can set things like, you know, the velocity of a particular trigger, the amplitude of the sound, the, the frequency range of the sound and map that visually in 3D. So you have this uh, kind of weird 
amorphous form that keeps pulsating and moving and you can change the parameters. It's like sort of like touch design, visual design, and just manipulating that digitally to create these shapes. Is that what you were working on in the in the WeTransfer documentary? Yeah, on exactly. That program? Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. yeah, I was looking at it and I was like, what is that? Studio, but dude is like drawing some stuff. What's happening? <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So exactly. Yeah. So it starts starts from that program usually mm-hmm. and just messing around and just exploring what comes out of it. And then you take that, then you you create a formal structure around that. You think about everything from this, the design. Who is this woman, right? Who's going to wear this? What are they doing? Right? What are they thinking mm-hmm. about when they're wearing this? What do they, you know, where are they wearing this to? And thinking about everything, right? You know, why does this have to have this particular welt? You know, how are you thinking about the seaming here? Where are the angles? Uh, everything, right? So then you, you run it through a formal design process. It goes through a couple of prototypes, experiment with fabrics. You understand not only the fabrication, but also how to actually take that textile. And if it's something embroidered, how do you either create texture from the textile itself? Or how do you, you know, of course, then map that on top of the textile? How does that process, the designing, the graphic design around that? Yeah, so it, it's a really exciting process. And and for me, the fun thing is that it's, it's strangely, it's quicker than, quicker than music for me. So I can oh. think of something and, you know, you can see something very quickly. And you know, like, all right, okay, I know what this is. Like, you can have the seed and, and display the fruit of that very quickly. Whereas in, I think in music sometimes, at least for me, I take some time. <laughs> I'm a little slow. <laughs> and it's what you said too, like uh, uh, clothing is tangible. It's easier to see something tangible than like uh, create something off of an emotion. And so so once you've done all of that, do you, is each individual piece made to order or do you make a certain amount of, you know, each jacket or pant that's available to buy ready-made? Yeah, two channels. I mean, one is B2B, uh, business to business, where we're, 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 we're working with boutiques, we're working with retailers across the world and fortunate to have, you know, a, a wonderful set of folks that we're working with across Japan, Paris as well, two folks in India, two, two lovely stores in India, and then uh, a few other spots around the world. The other channel, of course, yes, absolutely, is the B2C side, right? Where to consumer, where we're really talking to folks directly. And that part is really exciting for me because you know immediately if people are, are I mean, responding yeah do they do they resonate do they not you know what's working why does it work and you you hear the most amazing stories also sometimes you know like uh hey i wore this and you know it really made me feel connected back to something that i just didn't couldn't access immediately on my own some statements you hear are really lovely and just my last question about the label specifically is how do you hope to see the label grow? Because I feel like growth is this really interesting thing where you said like with fast fashion, it's all about like, how quickly can we make everything? How much can we produce? So what does quote unquote growth look like for a smaller brand? Not a a smaller brand, but a brand that's working. Absolutely smaller brand. Yeah, well, that's that's making things and being very conscious about how they're being made. Great question. I think, you know, especially as small emerging label, you have to be very conscientious about what you're putting out in the world, you know? I don't think anyone needs more clothes. I, I genuinely don't think anyone needs more clothes. I think people do need objects with emotion, right? You need something that that really carries something beyond just the scope of the fabric. It's so easy to walk into any store and say, great, I need this for this occasion, et cetera, et cetera. But what really will stick with you, the pieces that will really last with you are those that I think are made carefully, are made with a lot of care and almost devotion, I would say, you know, there is this sort of sacredness. I mean, to me, I think that's imbued in some of these, in the process as part of the labor of love. And then I think the third point is you need things that will really last you and just be made well. I think it's so easy to take shortcuts in this day and age to use 
very toxic products, to use fabrics or processes that are not sustainable. And you think about the short-term gains and then you think about the long-term costs of that, right? To me, that just does not equate. Awesome. Thank you. I realized I didn't ask you a huge question, which is, so now you've just released your first single under the aegis of Suri, S-U-R-I-I, and you've released your first song with Sid Ram and Shilpa Rao, You're Not Alone. So I have two questions around this. The first question is, Does it? how does it feel to release music as an individual versus making music as a composer? Is there, is there a kind of like difficulty to that? Is, does it feel higher stakes and does it feel like you're putting more of yourself into it? Yeah, no, that, <laughs> hit the nail right on the head. I think it's, there's so much, uh, and, and I think that track is immensely personal to me. I wrote that coming out of school. It was this flash of lightning at like 4 a.m. in the morning or something. I remember like quite quite a while ago. I want to say like 2014, 2013. Wow. Just this melody came out at that point. And I remember, you know, I woke up and I had this idea in my head. And I was like, oh, my God, like I have to put it down on paper. And just the melody that, that just came to me. And then it sort of developed into what it was over a lot of effort. And that I, I find that really, really special to me because it was so hard to put together. For me, that that song just refused, refused to come together. And I knew it had potential. I was like, you know what? I know it's there. There's some kernel of like truth inside the song. Where is it? I don't know how to get to yeah. it. Despite any attempt, like there's some 50 versions of that song on my across my hard drives. Uh, <laughs> and it just did not work until, and I, I just put it on the shelf and I was like, okay, I don't, I didn't have the right lyrics for it. I, it was there. You know. You know. I don't know. I don't know if you have this feeling when like something is there inside you, and you're like, yes. "Man, I I cannot pull it out. Like it's just like refusing to come out of me. Like I don't know what to do with this." Mm -hmm. And it's frustrating. You're <laughs> you're sitting there like, you know what? Like I'd like to fast forward this part. Like do the whole montage, get through this, magically get everything together. Then boom, snap. Yeah, cool. Here you go. Thanks, world. Bye. Peace. That did not happen. <laughs> no montage. <laughs> No Shadow Khan sequence, nothing. Yeah. Alas. What did happen was I had shelved this track and, you know, was quite busy with a lot of film work at, at one given point of time. And just at the start, just before COVID really hit, we were just seeing the effects and I saw this very personally devastating story. And suddenly things just clicked. Everything just clicked. And I realized this is what it's supposed to be about. It's It was everything that I was personally struggling with. There's this one line in between, in between who you were and who you might have been, right? And it's a story about potential and this vision of yourself, you know, in youth and seeing yourself as someone and this version of this, this version of yourself, this younger version and this potentially older version meeting and understanding, you know, like, was it worth it? What happened? Are you where, is it everything you've ever dreamed? I'm everything you need to be. There are a few lines that, you know, discuss this idea of like, potential where where you need to be in life in any given point in time and then that just like <laughs> existential sense uh, of dread just trying to turn that over completely and really push that into this sort of space of elation euphoria and like trying trying to say that one you're not alone in this like two it's it's inevitable right these questions are inevitable you will find your way right for me it was just a very personal message i wrote that very emotionally uh, <laughs> to myself. And yeah. it was just a, it was a track for me, you know, uh, very selfishly. And then I realized at that point, after reading, you know, about some of the horrific things that were happening, that was a bit more universal. It was not just about me. And I spoke to Sid about it, spoke to Shilpa about it. And, you know, they were like, yo, let's do this. And so, you know, thankfully, before 
COVID really started, Sid and I got together in the studio. He was in Chennai at the time. The We Transfer crew was also in Chennai at the time, which was great. Yeah, because there's a little bit of that in the in the film. Yeah. Yeah, and so it was just like completely serendipitous. It was crazy. That session was the probably the most sublime, powerful session I've ever been in in my life. Like I will. I will carry that memory with me. What made it that, what made it so sublime? It was so immediate, you know, like uh, it was just, we, you know, we started off chatting saying, okay, you know, here's a song, you know, okay, Kiravani, Zaraga, basically like a, a sort of minor scale. And then how do you translate that into just feeling, you know, and we had the, I had the lyrics at that point and we were just trying some things out. And then there was this moment, you know, where we were like just exploring and then something just, the, the energy changed in the room. So I was in the control room, you know, like Sid was in the vocal booth. And then he just went off, like, boom, catapulted off into the stratosphere. And you couldn't catch him after that. That was it. You know, he was off on another plane. And it was, we, we had, I remember, I remember we did like three takes and it was all perfect. I would, I would easily, I could make three versions of the track just pulling in those takes. And we were just like, you know what, just keep going. This is so, so beautiful. And we just kept rolling for a couple, couple hours and we were just, just jamming and it was just, it was so sublime and the thing is you know when uh Sid and Shilpa both are people where the craft is so pure you you can sense that purity in the craft even just listening to like the bit in the documentary versus in the in the actual final song i couldn't believe it, it you, it's hard to believe that someone's voice right yeah it's he's brilliant man is brilliant did you know that you wanted him to be the him and Shilpa to be the vocals on it immediately right the away. moment so I had this I had this like moment then I was like oh my god I spent this like frantic day just recording all the parts like I literally just like pulled out my bass I was like okay this is everything and you know got the demo down and I was like this is it this is the track and we had to record drums in LA because a couple of logistic issues in Chennai recorded the drums like shipped that in flew it in and like just in time for the session I just knew immediately once the lyrics were down, I was like, yeah, this is it. This is Shilpa. And this this is what it, you know, how it all comes together. Did you know them before you made the track or were you like, I, I love their voices and I'm going to make it happen that I will meet them and bring them on. Both the uh, thankfully good friends. So didn't have to, uh, you know, <laughs> pick, you know, didn't have to annoy them. Like, you know, some of the other folks that I have in my <laughs> life, <laughs> both through just musician community, friends of friends, different projects that we've just admired, exchanged saying, Hey, I love your work. <laughs> and then that that's, that's about it. And they're both just, I have a special place for both of them in my heart because they're just wonderful people, very genuine. I think everyone, is talented. Everyone is fantastic, but they are incredibly wonderful people and such a joy to work with. That's amazing. And what's exciting about I don't know as much about Shilpa Rao, but I know I know with Sid Sriram, my friend was telling me that you know he grew up in the U.S. but then has been you know finding his way in India and making music. And one thing I was so excited about with the song specifically was he's singing parts in English, but they sound like what I've heard in Hindi and Telugu. And I've never heard that kind of combination before. So that's like a whole new genre, I don't know, genre or type of music that I, I'm like, I'm ready to see. Yeah, and absolutely. I think, you know, there's so much that can be explored. You know, Carnatic music is this, Hindustani music as well, is, is just this ocean, right? It is an endless ocean. There's so much you can just learn. No one will ever actually plumb the depths. And, and understanding the connections between how to trap that if you will, you know, in the architecture of a song, right? Where you're thinking about, all right, okay, I need to do this, then I need to do this, then I need to do this, right? And how do you 
take that new like I don't know firefly and like you put it inside this jar and you're like all right okay is this working it does it does it still glow right and you realize sometimes the the combinations of things completely just spark it sends you somewhere else right where neither could do alone i think there's a lot of space i think there are quite a few artists that do that brilliantly so yeah awesome yeah my my last question for you is okay two last questions <laughs> i'll be quick though yeah. okay so the <laughs> the second to last question is as you know, you're building as your music career is progressing, and also as your as your label is is continuing to build. How do you hope to see these two things continue to work together in the future? Great question. I think uh, you know from a. I really think that fashion and, and music are they're not that different. Yeah, the processes are different. Sure, you know the the way that it's communicated to audiences is different. The way that people interact with it is different. But ultimately, when a person wears an SGBG jacket or an SGBG dress and listens to, is hopefully captivated by, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, something from Suri. I think it's just two sides of a coin, I think. I think they're both equally valid ways of accessing, hopefully, primal emotions. I mean, or not primal, <laughs> fundamental emotions. <laughs> but hey, man, yeah. like, I, I, I maybe primal, you know? I, I really think that, you know, I, I want to do two things in life, especially with music. I think, you know, make people cry and break shit, like, in any order. Any order. <laughs> Both of those are acceptable responses too. Like yeah. visceral responses. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can, I'm, they also go together in the sense that, you know, if you have an SGBG show, what music is going to be playing? <laughs> like your music. Sitriram. Uh, <laughs> Frank yeah, Ocean, yeah. obviously. Like. <laughs> obviously, live show. Good times. I'll be there. You'll be there. It'll be great. I'll be, be there. Great. I'll be wearing my SGBG jacket. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I really love how those work together. And my my last question is, what advice do you have for people who are trying to break into the music industry or fashion industry and find their footing in any industry that feels unconventional without like a straight path? Three things. One, you have to have conviction. You have to understand that these are industries built on built on very subjective models of taste. You have to be willing to fight through a lot to get to where you want to go. And I think you have to have the the grit, the resilience to kind of, to get there. It's never, and, and at no point, in, I think in anyone's career, I, I won't say that anyone else's life, you know, a, a non-musician's or a non-artist's life is easier, right? It's equally difficult. You have to think about their equal amount of trials and trial and tribulation to go through. I think you just have to have the conviction right. to go through it, come what may. And you have to believe in yourself and you have to invest in yourself to be able to actually get there, to give yourself that uh, belief. The second thing is you have to also be very practical. You have to understand that no dream is built on no dream is built on words that you're telling yourself. While you have to have conviction, you need to back it up with a fairly blistering work ethic. I think anything, you know, nowadays and I think I, again, you know, I, I think this is not just for the arts, but uh, you know, whether you're pursuing your career in banking, you know, it's uh it's mm -hmm. it's tough. You have to you have to be willing to to drive. The last part there is I think that while you do both of those, you need to know how to balance yourself and take care of yourself well, right? It's a long, long journey. It's not a sprint. You cannot sprint anywhere. That won't work. You have to really understand your limits, know how to push yourself and when to push yourself and be able to balance. And I think for me, I've, I, I'm terrible at this. You know, I say all this stuff and then I'm, I'm absolutely useless, especially at point three. You know, I would just burn out all the time. And then I realized that I had to find ways to make this sustainable. I would, it's, it's truly a marathon and thinking about very practical things like, you know, breathing exercises, meditation, yoga, et cetera, is very helpful, but whatever it is, I don't know, punching bags, not people, but I don't know, you know, doing something to, to, <laughs> to keep yourself, you know, some sort of homeostasis. You got to keep the balance somehow. 
I, I agree. I'm really bad at point number three because it feels like point number two and three are uh, at odds yeah. with each other sometimes. And then I think, sorry, one last point. Please. I think fourth is really knowing how to push back, when to push back. I think it's so easy, especially in this day and age, to uh, expect the world from everything. But you have to know how to set boundaries. You have to know how to create space for yourself where needed. You need to be respected. Respect never, never comes free of cost. There's always a tag against that, that you have to create that value for yourself. I think that's very important. No matter how small you are in the industry, no matter how where people look at you, it's always a matter of perception. And I think, you know, whether someone massive is looking down at you, whether, you know, someone smaller is looking up at you, it's entirely fickle. It's entirely perception. Nothing is built to last. Everything is built to spill, right? And so you have to take, you know, really be there for yourself at all points in any journey. Thank you so much, Surya. This was, <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for all of this. It was so awesome to talk to you and like get a perspective on on music and fashion that I haven't gotten before. I feel like, you know, most of the people I've talked to have been writers or directors. So it's it's cool to see the different aspects of artistry. And much more concise. <laughs> Sorry for rambling for an hour <laughs> no, and 11 minutes. No, I promise you not. Not, not more concise. Usually <laughs> I cut them down to be about 50 minutes, but don't, don't worry about it. Yeah, thank you. Hey, thank, thank you so you, much. Bruno. So lovely. Really appreciate it. And that was The Brown Breakdown. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to Surya, who I just can't even understand how his brain is able to wrap around all these different forms of artistry and excel in such an incredible way. I could talk to him all day about this stuff, so I hope you had some fun listening. Please do go check out his single, You're Not Alone, on Spotify, as well as the beautiful handcrafted SGBG pieces at sgbgatelier.com. That's sgbgatelier.com. And as always, if you have any questions, you can reach out at Brown Breakdown on Instagram. See you next time.